Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello and welcome to the show. This is our continuation of our story of Audrey Hepburn. If you have not listened to part one, we highly recommend that you go back and do so. Maybe I'll give you a quick 30-second summary. Audrey Rustin was born in Belgium, grew up in the Netherlands after schooling in England, and lived through the horrors of World War II, including the starving time known as the Hunger Winter. She traveled first to England and then to America, where she achieved success, not in ballet, as she had first intended, but in the field of acting. She's already been in two major motion picture hits and won an Oscar her very first time out. And now we rejoin this star as we continue along the story of her life. And so, without further ado, on with the show. Audrey has won an Oscar. Audrey has won a Tony. Audrey is making $3,500 a week, $33,000 a week in today's money, which is a long way from starving 10 years ago. Her star was on the rise, and she and her co-star, Mel, were married in Switzerland. It was true love on her part. I'm reserving judgment about her husband, though. Yeah, uh, at some point... At some point, Mama Ella would describe him as, quote, a frog-faced delinquent with spindly legs. <laughs> so I'm guessing she wasn't a fan. Despite his shortcomings, personal appearance-wise, which I don't really think he looks like a frog, but... I, I didn't. I didn't see frog either, but maybe she was projecting <laughs> how she felt about him. You know, like you can meet somebody and they just look average and then you get to know their personality and you're like, oh my God, you're the most gorgeous person on this planet. How did I not recognize that at the beginning? The mean people, they're not that attractive. Well, and I don't know that she would have liked anybody that her daughter married. Mother and daughter were so close and had been a team for so long. Here's He's the interloper, no matter mm -hmm. what. Well, his mother was Newport people. You know, fancy people. His father had been a doctor. Mel had been to Princeton. You know, what's not to like? He had an okay acting career. He was never going to be a superstar. He had all the right contacts, though. His resume looks amazing. He was missing whatever element that is that most people don't have. Luck, I guess. So I worry, and Audrey's friends worried, that he was coattail writing. Um, Mama, of course, agreed with me, thinking that was his motive, but Audrey didn't listen to either of us, so there. <laughs> her, her father did not give her away because he was M-I-A, but she did wear a Givenchy dress, so she did have a friend with her on the way down the aisle. <laughs> she is so funny, though. I have to say, all, all the time she keeps saying, oh, I'm no actress, I'm a horrible dancer, my collarbone is horrible. Like, I have not once thought about my collarbone, by the way. Oh, Not once. well, if you lose a lot of weight, you think about your collarbone because you don't see it until you lose it. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, I've got a collarbone. So I think about my collarbone quite a bit. My point is not so much the collarbone, but the fact that here she is like self-deprecating, but also simultaneously traveled with half of her possessions and then got to a hotel and had people jumping around to satisfy her every whim. Where's that table that was in this room last time? Somebody else has it in the room. Well, then they're going to have to do without it. Go knock on their door and get me my table. Oh, Lord. Is it like rebound from the war? My Depression era grandparents washed out baggies, but... Mm -hmm. What would have happened if someone gave them $33,000 a week? I don't know. I wish someone had. Maybe this. I don't know. What is happening to her personality? 
<laughs> she has become like a caricature of Baroness Van Heemstra before kind, the war. Kind of. That's interesting that you say that because the whole time I'm just reading her as like a sister in uh, imposter syndrome, her whole career. It's like, no, I wasn't very good. I know that. I know that line. I've said that line. I don't deserve to be here. Oh, interesting. I think if you don't feel imposter syndrome, that is a problem. I think it's called Dunning-Kruger syndrome. Whereas if you're in a position of power and you think you deserve to be there, you probably don't. Oh. When you get there and you think that you're the most capable person who could ever hold whatever job it is, probably Mm -hmm. not. Yeah. Because only people who are willing to grow and change and therefore be more quality at whatever job it is know they have a lot to learn and are willing to learn. Interesting. I'm wondering why I never ran across that. So Audrey needn't have had imposter syndrome because it was old home week. The Netherlands invited her to come back to dedicate some war memorials, to raise money for charity. She participated in the UNICEF Christmas card campaign, donated time to people who had helped her during the war, both just in the Netherlands as a whole and for UNICEF. So she was just now realizing the power that her fame could bring, the the good it could do for others. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when she was there on that on that particular trip, at one point she was signing autographs and the crowd got so massive. They wanted to get to her. They wanted to see her. She was such a big star that things started to break in the building and, and people were getting pushed and she scampered out of there. And she decided at that point she was never going to do any of these public appearances again without a lot of security around her. That's that has to be scary. You know, she's just coming up in fame to actually see it right in front of her Mm -hmm. in the same room and seeing, yes, she had the power to affect people, but the power that they had as a mob had to be frightening. Well, it doesn't matter if you get crushed to death by people that love you or people that hate you. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) You know, you end up the same flat pancake of a cartoon. So I could totally see that. Now, I'm sorry to say. On a personal note that Audrey suffered a miscarriage right about now, it wouldn't be her last. And I don't think I need to go into it too much. Um, Also, something else we can't go into in great detail. Every single movie she ever did with a fine tooth comb. She did War and Peace, which I think the studio was going to try to make into another Gone with the Wind. But just marketing wise, it never made its money back. Although she had good reviews in it. Her husband did not have good reviews. That's a theme that goes on. He's trying to use her fame to make himself famous. But he was always like thumbs down, man. Everyone's like, oh, God, we got to take that guy. Mm-hmm. I know it's kind of a bummer. So anyway, uh, funny face, which I hate, hate, hate. Thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. Because I always feel bad for hating it. Because it's got Audrey Hepburn, it's got Fred Astaire. What? It's in Paris. What's not for me to love? And I don't like it. This was very loosely based on a actual Broadway musical from 1927, which originally had starred Fred Astaire and his sister Adele. Although the plot is completely different, they managed to save four of the songs. Mm, Which one would you know? You'd probably know that Swonderful's Marvelous. You know, that's probably the most famous song from Funny Face. 
Um, so you have to be warned that it is very like a Broadway show. There's an opening number, Think Pink, that just goes on for way too long. Blurg. I'm so sorry. Lots of people like it. In fact, Fred Astaire himself was delighted to work with this one. He said, I love this one. And it turns out Audrey Hepburn had specially requested Fred Astaire and he felt so flattered, had a great time, etc. So they liked it. It's the favorite movie of her son, Sean. So Lots of people like it. Um, not me. The black capri pants and black turtleneck, though, um, are a winner. I have to tell you, I was so embarrassed by her dance at the nightclub that I think I've turned it off at that point probably seven times. Oh, my gosh. I got so embarrassed, like, for her. I'm just like, bye, 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 bye. And my feet just walked me out of the room. I eventually made it through, and it does get better toward the end, but I – there you go. There's funny face. I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if – it's the age difference between Astaire and Audrey. No, at the time that I get despairing and turn it off most of the time, she hasn't even met him yet. <laughs> uh, oh, no, I mean, for me, I'm trying to, because I'm oh. trying to figure out why I don't like it. And I maybe that's part of it. But I just, I don't know, he seemed ageless to me. Yeah. He was in his upper 50s. For most of her career, she was paired with significantly older actors. I don't know what the deal was with that. Audrey and Mel set up house. You know, she really, really wants to stay home and raise children. He really, really, really wants her to be a bigger star. They were at the right from the very beginning. They were working at cross purposes. That can't be a good sign for things to come. That seems to make his motivations very suspect. Mm -hmm. Here she is. I'd love to make a home with you and, you know, whatever it is, raise chickens and provide big meals for a family of children. And he's like, but you have to go to work. Mm -hmm. She was a self-proclaimed introvert. She actually says, I don't want to be alone. I want to be left alone. When I read this, I, I just think of you, Beckett. I was like, preach, sister, preach. <laughs> I know. Here's another one. Here's another one. It says, I have to be alone very often. That's how I refuel. I wish people would realize that because people think introverts are just quiet and shy, which isn't the case at all. I mean, case in point, you. It's just how you get your energy. You know, I take it from introverts and <laughs> introverts are pissed off that I'm taking their energy and they need to go off by themselves. Extroverts needn't think that we're going off to hide. We're just getting away from you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not. <laughs> Maybe I could have put that a little better. Not you, Susan, you, but you extroverts, you, you extroverts, you. <laughs> anyway, back to Audrey. The next movie she did was based on a real person. It's called A Nun's Story, and it does have a weirdly prophetic through line of Audrey's future life, actually. It's the story of someone that fought in the Belgian resistance who became a humanitarian. She took it very seriously with, I think, maybe her only bout of method acting. She ate hardly any food. She lived in a place with no heat. She made sure not to look in any mirrors, which that order of nuns prohibited. She went to learn both the mechanics of nursing, how to do prop work with medical, you know, props, and also, um, <laughs> I, I wrote nunning. That's wrong. <laughs> uh, convent life. <laughs> Why did I write nunning? I don't know. I I'm don't surprised know. I can't even read my writing. Well, um, so she also filmed in a leper colony, which I 
my hair stood on end because I still don't think there's a, quote, cure for leprosy. They filmed in the Belgian Congo. This is in the jungles. It's hot and sticky and disease everywhere. And they're filming this movie. So you're like, oh, she's such a not an actress, you know, not a diva. Well, she did ask for one thing, and that was an air conditioner. And so they sent away for it. It arrived. They plugged it in and it didn't really do anything. It might have worked better if they had actually sent an air conditioner and not a humidifier. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's what you get when you diva it up. I know, right? <laughs> you get karma reversal of what you wanted. Well, the leper colony thing freaked me out because right as they left, the guy said, by the way, the incubation period for leprosy is 17 years. So call me if you develop symptoms. Like, dirt bag. They took lots of precautions, but still, it was very terrifying. Yeah. The next movie, Green Mansions, not good. Here's the good part about Green Mansions. You've seen pictures of Audrey at the grocery store with her pet deer, Audrey on the couch with her pet deer. Well, it's not really her pet deer. It was a co-star for this movie. And in order to make it follow her character around like a little dog, the baby deer had to be very familiar with her. So it was thought that it would be best if she just lived with it for a while and took it everywhere and got it to love her. So that's what that was all about. They do the same thing, by the way. Anytime you see a production of Annie, chances are the little girl who plays Annie has um, taken the little dog that plays Sandy home Hmm. to hang out with. And no one else is allowed to pet it because the dog causes chaos if... He does not do what he's supposed to do. So typically a theater company will have the dog only interact with the little actress that plays Annie. And it makes it easier because he gets on stage and goes to the one person he's familiar with. Right. Huh. I did not know that. So that was the whole shtick about the deer. (laughs) Another thing about this movie is it was directed by her husband. So they got to spend a lot of time together. Their marriage wasn't the most stable. Maybe being together working was a good thing for them. Um, Something really bad happened, though. One day, Audrey was driving herself to the studio, and she rear-ended another car to avoid somebody else hitting her. At the scene, the woman who she hit said she was fine. Two weeks later, the lawyer said, no, she had some injuries, Miss Hepburn, who makes a lot of money. Let's sue you. You know, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, she's just coming after me because of the money. I mean, all right. Sometimes back and neck injuries don't happen at the scene. They happen later. I understand that. It took years to get through the court system. So it did go to court. She did have a small uh, percentage of the amount that they sued her for that she had to pay. But more importantly, she never drove herself again. (laughs) I think it was an overreaction. But I actually hadn't thought about that facet where she's not so much worried about hitting people as she's worried about people realizing who she is and suing her. Mm-hmm. It's a you rear-ended somebody with these big '50s cars. Yeah, I th- think you're probably going to be able to make it, you know, another day. Mm-hmm. But she gave it up, so there yeah, you go. It, there was a lot of trauma in it for her for some reason. <laughs> her next movie, Unforgiven, for which she received a quarter million in 1958 dollars, was a problematic western. Audrey plays a grown-up stolen American Indian baby. That's already, I'm just like, huh, huh. By today's standards, it's troublesome. I think there is a lot of racism portrayed, and it's not completely clear 
that it's against it. I don't know. It just seems to me that this is a little bit more of what we're finding troublesome about the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. You know, the only good Indian is a dead Indian and the settlers are on the right side. And um, lots of people on the movie review sites are comparing it unfavorably to another movie called The Searchers, which has the opposite plot point where a settler girl is kidnapped and raised in uh, Native American village. So judge for yourself. Audrey herself pretty much dissociated herself with this film ever after, but maybe because of events that happened behind the scenes during filming, rather than the plot itself. A big giant accident. She rode a horse named Diablo, there's your first clue, who threw her. And she received broken vertebrae and at least a sprained, if not a broken ankle. Later, after production was over, she had another miscarriage and was convinced that it was because of this injury. It didn't happen on set or anything. She was um, contracted to do her own writing. So there wasn't going to be a stunt woman doing it for her. So I wonder if she like doubted agreeing to that, but definitely falling off a horse with injuries like that. So they had to film all of her scenes that she wasn't in. And then they hired basically a body double to film all the scenes where what you see is her back or you can't see her face clearly. That was another person riding away on the horse. But there was a scene still left where she was coming straight toward the camera, hadn't been filmed, was critical to the plot. And so they were nervous about telling her she had to get back on the horse. She didn't get back in the car, but she got back on the horse. That seems more problematic to me, but they drugged that horse within an inch of its life. And she was brave and did the scene and closed out the movie. They left it to the very last so that nothing else would happen to her. And if she did get injured, that's a wrap, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> So she overcame her fear or her contractual obligation penalty to film that. So she is brave enough yeah. to face danger again. On a horse, but not with horsepower under the hood. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just cracked myself up. And I know that we agreed not to talk about Audrey's papa again, but he does come briefly into the story right here. She had regained contact with him. And they'd been exchanging letters and phone calls rather tentatively, but they never again were what you'd consider to be close at all. But she did call and tell him about this accident. And all he said to her was, that's what you get for riding a gray horse. That was all he had. I kept wondering how much of a myth father figure she had in her head for her life until she actually got to sit face to face with him again. I mean, Mel had actually hunted him down through the Red Cross, which... I'm going to give Mel lots of points for that. But sitting down, she realized what kind of man he was. And I wonder if it just dashed any idea that she had this ideal father that was floating in her head. She had decided that he was not the father she would have needed. That's mm -hmm. nice closure. Yeah, I guess it's closure. And she did provide for him financially, which reminds me a lot of Drew Barrymore. Same thing. She had an estranged father and um, she supported him financially while not being that close to him. For the rest of his life, too. Hmm. There's something about duty or family loyalty. I don't know. So they're both in that same situation. But when Audrey was 31, two amazing things happened in quick succession. Her son, Sean, was born. The first book I ever picked up and read about Audrey Hepburn was by her son, Sean, mm -hmm. incidentally, which prejudiced me greatly in Audrey's favor. Not that we 
need it because I think she's a quality person, mm-hmm. unlike some people we've covered. But I have to say that gave me a very good introduction to her inner life that I really appreciated. That's so funny because the first book I read was written by her other son. Yes, that's the second <laughs> book I read. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, so the second good thing that happened was a movie called Breakfast at Tiffany's. Probably her most famous movie. Whole books have been written about how this unlikely movie came to be in the first place. So we'll just give you the highlights. Audrey is playing a lady of negotiable affection. There is no way around that. But her innocence sort of made it possible, I think, or palatable to society. I mean, Marilyn Monroe was asked first. That's the author Truman Capote's ideal, Holly Golightly. Can you imagine? Yes. Actually, I can. Having read the, the novella, um, I can imagine Marilyn as, as her. I mean, and that's who he had in mind when he wrote it. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, as we know the movie now, Mm-hmm. retrofitting the lushness of Marilyn Monroe into that part would make it into a whole other movie. It would have elements in it that Audrey Hepburn didn't bring to the table. Oh, I agree completely. The story had to be modified, you know, to make that switch from Marilyn to Audrey. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad they did. Givenchy made that little black dress, the most famous of all little black dresses in the world. But I think she's wearing a knockoff in the movie. Because the director hated the long slit. Isn't that something? This one movie that makes her this, you know, really, when you think of Audrey Hepburn as a style icon, you think about her in that dress and, huh. Well, Natalie Portman is actually wearing one of the real Givenchy dresses with the slit in a 2006 issue of Vogue magazine. So we can put up the picture. I mean, it is an homage to Audrey. (laughs) She's got the hair up. She's got the tiara. It is clearly Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It is her most iconic look, I think, that she has ever had. I just think it's funny that it is an imposter. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's very funny. Word is that either Audrey or the costume designer took the movie dresses, the stand-ins, apart after filming to prevent embarrassment to the studio or her friend, Givenchy. But it doesn't really matter. That dress, its concept made Audrey even more of a style icon than she had been ever since the filming of Sabrina. So not only Audrey's fashion, fashion, there was also a fashion for orange cats after that movie. (laughs) There was a run on the pound for orange cats. (laughs) One element from the movie that we also need to talk about is the song Moon River, which was inspired by, as the composer said, Audrey's wistfulness. Well, she took vocal lessons and guitar lessons so that she could do that singing on the fire escape. She put a lot of effort into that song. So when the first screening happened and a Paramount executive said, that effing song has got to go, (laughs) Mel had to hold her back because she's screaming over my dead body. (laughs) Can you just like see this movie theater and then Audrey Hepburn trying to fly over the seat? Well, they left it in. And it won the Best Original Song in a Movie Oscar that year. So hooray. There were 11 movies in all, one right after the other. She was constantly working. And I'm sorry to say that in addition 
to 11 movies, she had two more miscarriages. And that brings her total up to four. All she really wanted, she was longing, just longing for the domestic bliss of a large family. During a period of inactivity, a rare period, she said to a friend, I feel like a real wife. I'm waiting for my husband to get home from work. I'm making dinner. I'm spending time with my child. So... (laughs) She has this ideal in her head of what a, quote, real wife should be. She actually asked another actress how she possibly combined work and family, and she was finding it very impossible. That is not an uncommon 50s and 60s perspective from a working woman, too. It's not that uncommon today. No. Um, But she really felt like she had to choose one or the other, and it was kind of tearing her up a little. Even though Sean and a nanny went with her um, from one movie to the next, I think she had a lot of mommy guilt about not being able to spend all that time with him when he was so little. So then comes my favorite movie, Sean... The baby in question loved Funny Face, but I love My Fair Lady as Miss Eliza Doolittle. You know, the one, the rhine and spine. My aunt died of influenza, so they said. But it's my opinion that they done the old woman in. One of my favorites. Julie Andrews, for a thousand performances, did a very good job on Broadway in this role. And when it came time to do the movie, the studio executives were like, nah, can you believe that? (laughs) No. I have to tell you, though, we benefited from this decision because it gave us the right Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. So perhaps the universe knew. So I don't know if everyone knows the story of My Fair Lady. It's based on a play called Pygmalion. But in My Fair Lady, a dialect coach bats his friend that he can pass off a Cockney flower girl as a lady by the end of the season. More importantly, Audrey was now earning $1 million for this movie, which is $8.5 million in today's money. That's amazing. Good for her. So Rex Harrison, who played the professor in question, Professor Higgins, who had been with Julie Andrews for those thousand performances, came into filming with a giant chip on his shoulder. He was not going to like her. She was not going to show her favoritism or like be her friend or anything because he was being loyal to his co-worker. But even he was absolutely won over. He couldn't resist. His walls came crumbling down. I love that about her. I wish I had that ability. <laughs> I mean, they just liked her as a person. Yeah. I think she was just very honest and straightforward and interested in people and just Mm -hmm. gentle. Everyone says gentle. She was just gentle, Mm -hmm. which makes it sad. Although it's just business, it's not personal. Audrey was heartbroken and frankly, very embarrassed that they dubbed in her singing voice. I'm sorry if that ruined (laughs) everything about it. It's a classic movie actually made about this whole thing called Singing in the Rain. Um, And a singer named Marnie Nixon sang all the tracks. Marnie had also sang for Deborah Kerr in The King and I and for Natalie Wood in West Side Story. So Audrey was in very good company. Actually, this fact may have cost her the Oscar that year, which went to, drum roll, please, Julie Andrews for Mary Poppins. <laughs> Karma. I know. She wasn't even nominated, but she did get to present the Best Actor Award to Rex Harrison. (laughs) 
moment, everyone's just waiting. They're waiting for the Jets and the Sharks to fight. Julie Andrews v. Audrey Hepburn. Burn, burn. Nope, never happened. The press was super disappointed, but everyone was a lady and got over it and was very professional. So (laughs) maybe it was that British thing they have going on. Well, Mel and Audrey divorced after a 13 year marriage. The blame can't actually be put on either one of them because during their marriage, they both had little dalliances. So it, it can't be said, oh, he did this or she did that. They split up fairly amicably. Someone called it an avalanche of good manners, the whole divorce proceedings of the two of them. So I I am applauding them for being able to do that. They have their son who's, you know, what, eight? And they were they were on their best behavior, I think. But I think once they got divorced, she told him that she was not going to speak to him again except for about the child. Not in a mean way. Just you go your way. I'll go my way. Let's not try to be friends because it's not going to be comfortable. Right. So up until her son's wedding, I don't think they ever spoke again. Well, you know, when you break up with someone, you have to think that they're gone out of your life. They're dead. Uh. They're dead to me. But he was her her kid's father. So there had to be some interaction. Well, and of course, the marriage was always tense because the fact that she wanted to let up to take a break, stay with Sean, stay with her mother who lived with them. And he was always angry that his coattail was taking a break. So there's that operating in the background, too. And it was never very awesome to be Mr. Hepburn holding her purse while she signed autographs. We saw that with Desi Arnaz, didn't we? I am Mm -hmm. not Mr. Ball. I am Desi Arnaz. You know, he was always very, very sensitive about that. The next year, she met and married Andrea Doty, Italian psychiatrist and professor. No more showbiz on the other side of the family, which is probably for the best. Um, Although he did have the ego. Weirdly enough, how about this for It's a Small World after all? Andrea Doty, who she met on a friend's boat, was the 14-year-old boy who had run up to her during filming of Roman Holiday and then run home to tell his mother he just met the most beautiful woman in the world. Wow. Even if they didn't have show business in common, they did have something in common. His parents were a count and countess. So that means that Andrea was a count. He was nobility. Which means if she marries a count, what does she become? A countess. <laughs> they didn't really use the titles, but technically she is now a countess. So, and that's above a baroness, by the way. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. But what Audrey said about this relationship to a reporter, and I quote, I'm in love and happy again. I never believed it could happen to me. I'd almost given up. I don't care if I never make another film. I've worked nonstop from my early teens until I was 38. I need to relax. Why should I take up work again? And the life I rejected when I've married a man I love, whose life I want to live. So she kind of did just that. She stopped making movies for a while and she started to stay at home, just like she wanted. Well, Andrea Doty lived what I'm going to call the cool kid lifestyle, like hipper than the jet set. (laughs) (laughs) He had the friends that knew the new restaurants, that knew the new nightclubs that were more fashionable than your average rich person. It was really 
kind of neat for her after being a person that, you know, drank a glass of milk and went to bed at 930 or 10. (laughs) Now we're out. Oh, the sun's coming up. It's time to go home. So that was a nice little break. She hadn't ever had that as a young teenager. You know, the years that where most people get all crazy, she was working her hiney off to be either a ballet dancer or auditioning for small Mm -hmm. parts. So I'm glad that she got that little period of her life. For those of you who like to um, think about what you can do as you mature, she was 40 when she got married. So it wasn't like she was a spring chicken or anything. She was youth varsity. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like sitting here like going, how do I say this without being mean? I love that. Youth Varsity. I hereby I, call the years from 40 to, I don't know, let's call it 40 to 65 is youth varsity. Oh my God. I love that. Can we make a t-shirt? Yes, yes. we can. <laughs> okay. Guess what else happened? She became pregnant again after four miscarriages. Um, she decided based on something Sophia Loren said to her, there's some name dropping, that she was going to self-bed rest herself uh, to make sure that this baby caught, as they said. But her husband immediately began Tom Cattery. I'm not too fond of him for that. No, I was going to make a joke about he was bed resting too. Oh. (laughs) And he wasn't even like discreet enough to avoid the paparazzi. He's just walking into places with some other woman on his arm. And Audrey's like nestled in a bed in Switzerland reading this in the papers. Not cool. Well, you never know how a marriage works on the inside. Somehow they patched it up. And those books I read written by her children talk about this period of Audrey's life as just tranquil and family. Mm -hmm. There's pictures of her with these big, ridiculously big bowls of spaghetti with all these friends in the back garden. She had these loyal servants, one named Giovanna in particular, who would kill for her, frankly. Audrey even told this cook, husbands will come and go, but you and I will be together forever. (laughs) They became like family. Time spent with Sean and Luca who was born when Sean was 10, successfully, hooray, Luca, country life, serenity, her garden. It was basically eight years of meditation, I guess is what I would call it. Well, she had been working for so long, one movie after another. I mean, she would finish a movie, start the next one, and that other movie hadn't even opened yet until she was almost done filming the next one and the next one and the next one. She needed this as a human being. She needed this kind of break. So glad she got to take it. Yeah, me too. Her colleagues in Hollywood uh, and London did not comprehend it, as a matter of fact. One of her friends, a man named Terrence Young, who directed her several times. You know, while I have Terrence Young at the top of my mind, I would like to name drop him for two other things. The industry at the time seemed to think that when Sean Connery played James Bond for the first time, he was doing nothing more than a Terrence Young impression. So now you know what he's like. Ladies man, man about town, Dapper Dan, uh, world's most interesting man, etc. But more importantly, he had a previous connection with Audrey from back in the war. He was a tank commander when the Allies took back the city of Arnhem. And he always used to joke while he was directing Audrey in a film called Wait Until Dark, in which she played a blind woman terrorized by a gang trying to find a heroin-filled doll in her apartment. Yes, you should check that out. Anyway, he used to joke that had his aim been a little worse, he would be out of a job today. 
because he was shelling the city where she lived. Dark, macabre workplace humor for the win. But he had a lot to say about how hard it was to pry Audrey out of her haven during these years. He kept trying to get her to do these projects. And this is how he described the process of talking to Audrey Hepburn during these meditation years. First of all, you spend a year or so convincing her to accept even the principle that she might ever make another movie in her whole life. Then you have to persuade her to read the script. Then you have to spend time making her understand that it's a good script. Then you have to persuade her she will not be destroying her son's life by leaving to film the movie. After that, if you're really, really lucky, she might start talking to you about the costumes, but more likely she'll say, I have to get back to my family. There's pasta cooking for dinner. Thank you so much for calling and thinking of me. (laughs) She turned down some seriously big projects. She turned down Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Nicholas and Alexandra, The Exorcist, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, (laughs) A Bridge Too Far, and The Turning Point. If anything was made for her, The Turning Point, it was about ballet. She was not having it. She was on a break. Well, It seems to be inevitable. Her vacation from real life came to a sudden end, largely because her husband was cheating again. Which is humiliating if you're a civilian. I don't know the other word. A regular old Joe or Audrey. Horrifying when the whole world knows about it. Also, how about this for Sinister? They're in Italy and there were credible threats of a member of the family being kidnapped for ransom. This is the era of J. Paul Getty's grandson being kidnapped for ransom. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they cut off his ear and everything. Andrea Doty was actually attacked by four men trying to get him into a vehicle, but he got away. The kids wouldn't have been so lucky. They would never have been able to break away. Mm-hmm. Um, so from now on, Audrey would take precautions and travel with bodyguards. And she moved her kids up to Switzerland. She got out of Italy, Mm -hmm. but her husband wouldn't go with her. I mean, he had a practice. He taught at the university there. So, you know, he believed in his life and his women. I'm going to say it. She just went off with the boys and settled in Switzerland. Well, it's not a nice breaking point, but it is a breaking point. And when we come back, we will discover how the rest of Audrey's life played out. Flamingo makes body care, starting with hair. A collective of women at Harry's, a men's shaving brand, saw an opportunity to create better hair removal solutions for women after interviewing thousands of them. I could tell right away that they were a company that had a sense of humor right on the box. It says, women are strong, smart, beautiful, funny, and hairy. True that, Flamingo, especially after the long winter we've had around here. So it was time to get some things under control. First of all, their razor is fancy. It's sleek and balanced and attractive. It's not embarrassing to have hanging in the shower at all. This thing has five blades. It's not messing around. And they've obviously really looked at its function. It's flexible and easy to use. I didn't drop it once. Their lotion smells so very good. It has white willow in it. And my thirsty winter skin just drank it up. The whole experience felt more like a treat than the chore that it usually does. I want you to enjoy shaving too. And Flamingo designed a shave set that makes me really happy. It's a $22 value, but just for you, it's $16 and ships free. So easy. The shave set is your end-to-end routine in one reusable pouch. Gel, the razor, 
extra blades, lotion, and a holder so it doesn't get lost in your shower. Also, it's 2019, so it's obviously all cruelty and paraben-free. Get a set with all your shave essentials from Flamingo, the brand that Vogue, Glamour, really everybody's talking about. It's a $22 value for just $16 with free shipping today when you visit shopflamingo.com slash chicks. That's right. Visit shopflamingo.com slash chicks. So Audrey's second marriage broke up, whether from cheating or a geographical impossibility, right as she was struggling through what I would call a lackluster comeback season. There's a few movies not of note, I guess, is what I should call it. And to make it a little bit worse, to make it a lot worse, the Italian courts at this time just usually gave custody to the father. So her younger son, Luca, often was gone from her too, living with his father. So she really needed those eight years. So a movie that never got made that I actually think might have been good. For some reason, whoever had a hold of the rights wasn't going to let him go. They were going to film a sequel to Roman Holiday in which Princess Anne was now Queen Anne had been married and had a daughter, I want to say. And then the journalist is now the president of a newspaper or something and has a son who's of marriageable age and those two meet and ultimately get married because Roman Holiday doesn't have your typical happy ending. Princess Anne goes back to her duties and leaves this man behind because mm-hmm. she knows it's the right thing to do. So, you know, in modern romantic comedy, she'd throw it all away and leave her crown and no, she was more realistic. <laughs> I don't know what happened. They couldn't get the rights to the original material or something. And um, so they couldn't do it. I thought that would have been a good movie. Well, she's in a weird space, I have to tell you. In Hollywood, that upper 40s, you can't play a wise old woman. You're not ready for character parts. You can't play an ingenue or a romantic lead, which is, you know, BS. Um, Maybe less of an issue than it was. I think it's still in force. It's getting better. (laughs) Yeah, but this is the 1970s, so it wasn't very good at all. She met and fell in love with a man named Robert Volders. But get this, he had been a nine-year-old boy in Holland during the German occupation. They had a lot in common in their personal history. They had both seen the horrors of war. Her friends thought she'd never been happier. Audrey thought she'd never been happier, in contrast to her two husbands who were various levels of controlling. And um, I don't know, I guess I'd almost say out to profit from her fame. Mm-hmm. Maybe just... not monetarily, but at least socially. Right. This guy seemed like the backup man. He was there for her. It was true love on both sides. He was there because he loved the person that she was. Mm-hmm. And he had a good character resume behind him. He had been married. His wife had recently died when they first met. And people were saying, oh, he's going to get all of her money. He took her jewels and sold them and gave the money away. So he's like, no, I don't want her money. I married her because I loved her. And now she's dead. And now I've met Audrey and I'm doing the same thing is how I perceived him. So I just think this guy was really good for her. So I love it. Loyalty and security and friendship. They never actually got married, but Audrey viewed them as as good as married. Mm -hmm. And they could speak Dutch together. (laughs) Well, so if Hollywood was not going to come calling, what was she going to use to fill her days? She was only 58. 
She didn't need money. She had enough money to last many lifetimes more. She had had enough fame. She was approached by the UN Children's Fund, otherwise known as UNICEF. Would she be a goodwill ambassador for them? What does that mean? She said, we would like for you to draw the world's attention to the perils of children all over the world. Um, You know, we can hammer out the details of that later, but Ultimately, that's your role. Get the public motivated to give money and make changes to children's lives all over the world. It was pretty daunting. It was. And, you know, they had um, celebrity ambassadors before her. They didn't create this position for her, but they were celebrities where she felt that she was a worker, just another UNICEF worker. She had to kind of fill out an application, even though they came to her, she had to be approved through her application process. It's probably the only application she filled out in her whole life. Maybe. <laughs> and they did pay her a dollar. Yeah. So technically it's not a volunteer. <laughs> That's right. I don't know why. Maybe it was tax reasons. I'm not sure why. Well, uh, so Audrey had never really gotten over her fundamental shyness, I guess. I, you know, playing a part is one thing, but small talk public speaking in your own words without someone having written you a script was going to be a hurdle. Um, She'd have to speak from her heart about a tough subject, not to mention that she was probably going to have her heart broken over and over the whole time she was doing this. Her first trip for UNICEF was to Ethiopia, where she visited villages with her media entourage, because there's really no point if you're the ambassador trying to bring what's happening to the world, you had to bring pictures and video back. She met people, she listened to people, she learned about their problems, and then came back and spoke about them to people in a position to help, to school children, to TV audiences. I literally remember Ethiopia being a big deal. Mm-hmm. A big deal. And um, at one point, children in elementary schools, you'd get these boxes around Halloween time and they were flat and you had to fold them into a box and they were coined boxes and you'd take them around for Halloween in addition to candy. Don't get me Trick- wrong. It was those orange boxes and you'd say trick or treat for UNICEF instead of just trick or treat. I know. Mm-hmm. I did it. Did you do it? I read about it in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, I think. Oh, okay. Or if not that, then um, one of those other Judy Bloom books had it in there as a pretty prominent thing. So I've known about it for a long time, but I think it was more of an East Coast thing. Ah, that would explain it. Uh, it was blubber. It was blubber about bullying. Oh, that's a painful book to keep reading. But that's the Judy Bloom book that had the UNICEF in it so prominently, where I also learned what a flenser was. Why has that stuck with me all these years? <laughs> We didn't do so well. We lived in the country, so our trick-or-treating houses were pretty limited. <laughs> but we did it. We got It rattled at the end of the night. Little children would ask after her inspirational speeches, what can I do? And she would say, send your pennies to UNICEF. It's literally how she would answer it. There's no need to be theoretical about it. <laughs> this is what you can do. You're five. You have a penny. Send it there. And then she would also give the toll-free number or have your parents call the toll-free number, blah, 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 blah. See, she knows what she's doing. You just, you know, put the hashtags on. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> she, it'd be interesting to know if that's still going on. I would not doubt that it is. Oh, I don't know. It never came up in uh, my kids' schooling. Hmm. I will look into it and put it in the show notes. And we cannot stress enough how much Audrey Hepburn was not just a pretty face on the TV screen. She was very determined in her mission and tried to bring attention and 
solutions to many aspects of what she found going on in the countries she visited. Things like contaminated water, sanitation, sickness, food distribution. Um, and I just want to give a little shout out to Robert Volders here, who got involved in the background. He might not have been on camera, but he was arranging travel. He was arranging meetings with world leaders. This is no joke. Um, security details. Sometimes she was in grave danger. She went to war zones. Often the things she saw caused her to break down, but only in private. And it was only Robert that was privy to that and could help her through those parts. She, he was very valuable to her. In public, though, she became the face of compassion. She was the symbol of humans' better selves. She was seen as a guardian angel. So ironically then, at 60, her last movie role was as a guardian angel, the guardian angel Hap in Steven Spielberg's Always. It was so cute. He wrote her a letter because he really wanted her for the role. He wrote her a handwritten letter and sent it to her in Switzerland asking if she would be a part of this movie. And she graciously agreed. So all these people have done tap dances of doom to try to get her to read their script. And he writes one letter. Mm-hmm. Must have been one hell of a letter. <laughs> what else had he done up till then? Was the E.T. Jaws. That's a big one. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Ooh, The Color Purple. I used a song from The Color Purple for auditions for years and years. I had forgotten about that. I'm going to go watch that. Indiana Jones. Yes. Maybe she liked his work. Yeah, it was 1989. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. He was definitely a famous director at the time. The movie was about, it's, it's very random, by the way, about a team of forest firefighters. I and love I this movie. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil it too much because there's a kind of critical thing that happens near the beginning that makes the rest make sense. And this was panned by critics. But if I ever see it, I don't know that anyone under the age of, say, 40 channel surfs anymore. But if, if I do channel surf... And I see it up. It's one of those movies that you'll just like, oh, yeah, I'll watch this. Mm -hmm. You know, you go get your snack and come back and are perfectly happy to sit through it again. She, I mean, man, this is just distilled Audrey, this role, serene and gentle. And I just think herself. At one point, as Hap the Guardian Angel, she even says, anything you do for yourself is a waste of spirit. And. It's amazing to see her. Really, it's amazing to see her. And it was a very good last movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I did love that movie. So although her natural humility would not allow her to go to events or do projects if they were, quote, in her honor, organizations quickly learned that if they promised to give all the money to UNICEF or the ASPCA, she would be in. That's how they got her. Spielberg didn't have to do that, but that's how they got her to do these projects. People quickly organized things like film festivals, galas, orchestra concerts. MoMA had a retrospective of her work, TV series, whatever anyone could do to get Audrey Hepburn on their project and therefore raise money and awareness for her cause. She had hosted a PBS series called Audrey Hepburn's Gardens of the World, where she uh, she toured Gardens of the World. It's 
so charming. She's just herself. She's such a gardener. She It was a hobby she had. And so she really gets into talking about all these different gardens. And it was a three-month-long road trip for her, going from one place to another to film this series. And she also recorded an s- album called, these, these titles are so clever, Audrey Hepburn's Enchanted Tales, where she told fairy tales. Audrey, bless her, was always blown away that she had any pull. I think she just generally did not understand how much love the public had for her. And I quote, I'm totally surprised by this. I'm surprised people recognize me on the street. I say to myself, well, I must still look like myself. (laughs) I just fell into this career. I did work very hard. That'll take credit for, but I don't understand any of this. At the same time, it warms my heart. I am terribly touched by all of this. She's so humble. I know. <laughs> yeah, even you read it, it, it could have been taken as um, sarcastic a little bit, but not. No, no, no. If you heard her saying these things, she totally believed it. That's exactly who she was. At 61, she did something called The Concert for Life, which is an amazing collaboration. Audrey would read from Anne Frank's diary, backed by a symphony inspired by Anne Frank's life. And we linked to a song from this work during the Anne Frank episode, but did not receive permission in time to put it in that episode. So um, maybe we can give you a link to that link. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yes. But a whole symphony was written about Anne Frank. And um, given that her life had paralleled Anne Frank's for so long, she felt really compelled to work on this project kind of for the greater good. She had been approached when she was around 25 to play Anne Frank in the movie. And she <laughs> is like, I can't possibly pull this off. There's no way I'm too old. Mm-hmm. So she felt like that was the least she could do for a fellow victim of the German occupation. So Audrey continued her work with UNICEF and she traveled honestly to war-torn countries, sometimes under fire. There's pictures of her in a flak jacket and helmet in helicopters. She's She brings supplies, she brings compassion and attention to the conditions of fellow human beings all over the world. And Audrey began to experience severe stomach pain, which you know, you'd attribute to traveler's tummy. Don't drink the water, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just part of the picture. If you go places with no sanitation, I'll treat the parasites or whatever when I get back. So she went off to Somalia, which is our traditional depiction of the continent of Africa is a skull looking to the right. Somalia is the bridge of the nose. Okay, so it's on the right. As you look at a map, it's the very, very edge of Africa. And I do believe that the pictures of Audrey and the starving children of Somalia that she was trying to help there are the picture that we all think of. We think of Breakfast at Tiffany's. We might think of My Fair Lady. And then these pictures. Mm -hmm. She described it as apocalyptic and that it was the worst famine she had ever seen. Now, this is a woman who's been traveling to countries with famines. This was the worst she'd ever seen in 10 years of traveling for UNICEF. She called Somalia a living nightmare. She was not, even though she was readier than any of us would have ever been, she was not ready for the depths of the despair. Like it had gone past despair into this numb acceptance. She said she would never forget her bus came, pulled up, and there are 15 thousand starving children just patiently waiting for their fate. Is it going to be death? 
um, am I going to be run over by this bus? You know, they had no energy to even care. It was the most heartbroken she had ever been in her in her entire life. She met with leaders there at great risk to herself to just try to end the war that was causing this catastrophe in the first place. She always felt like she never did enough, even though she did more than anyone, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine anybody doing this job that well. Because when she went on, you can, maybe we'll put some in the show notes, but you can certainly see them on YouTube, interviews with her during this time. When you listen to her talk about what she saw, she's so descriptive. She's so honest. She's so uh, caring. You know, she just, her heart, her eyes are welling up as she's talking about this. And you know, it's not acting. I can't imagine anyone spurring people to action as much as she did. So when she got back after this experience, she was diagnosed with a form of terminal, as it turned out, abdominal cancer. When she received the notice that they couldn't treat her after a couple of operations, she held her son's hand and said that it was so disappointing. And she did try to stay strong for her sons. My mother did the same thing. I think she was in great amounts of pain. She was on morphine and going downhill fast. She wanted to go home. She wanted to go home to Switzerland, her happy place, her haven, to die. But she was too ill for commercial airlines to take her home. And so Givenchy called up a connection of his, a socialite who was super famous named Bunny Mellon, filled her private jet with flowers and flew Audrey Hepburn back to her house in Switzerland. I love their friendship. That's what makes this this next part really sad. Um, at Christmas time, she invited her nearest and dearest friends to her home, the one that she shared with Robert in Switzerland. And she gave away her items that she knew that they would like and that they would like to remember her by. She gave Givenchy a coat, a blue one, because she said it was his color. And he wrapped himself in that coat and just cried on the way home to Paris. He knew that that was the last time he was going to see her. You know, you don't have friends like that in your life that often. And I think they both valued that friendship so much. Even the gardener came up to see her and he asked her, what are we going to do without you? You know, surely you'll be here to help me next year with this garden. And she smiled at him and said, of course, I'll continue to help you, but not in the same way. It's pretty sad. Okay, hold on. I'm crying. I don't know why you're not. Okay, go ahead. At 63, she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, although it had to be brought to her, but it was brought to her by the U.S. ambassador with a letter from President H.W. Bush. I actually would like to read that letter, if you don't mind. No. Dear Audrey, I am delighted to send you the Presidential Medal of Freedom to honor your outstanding contributions to humanity through the arts and through your outstanding service to UNICEF. As I mentioned in our telephone conversation, and during the awards ceremony, I regret that you were unable to be with us here at the White House so that I could personally present this award to you. Nevertheless, it was a privilege to celebrate your many contributions to film as well as your wonderful humanitarian work on behalf of the children around the world. As a gifted actress, you have won the affection of millions of fans. As a giving, caring individual, you have won the world's enduring respect as well. Barbara joins me in sending warmest best regards to you. Sincerely, G.W. Bush. And underneath, by hand, he wrote, we are very proud of you. Wow. So I like it when people get their accolades while they're still alive. Yes. Because on January 20th, 
1993, Audrey Hepburn died in her sleep at home in her bed, although she was alone in her room, and her beloved servant Giovanna was the one that found her. Her funeral was a very simple tribute filled with people who loved her, and Sean, her son, said later that he was given an estimate that 25,000 people had lined the streets of their small town, paying their respects perfectly silently as his mother's very simple pine coffin went by. The world mourned her loss. Articles in every major newspaper. Who could ask for anything more after we're gone? Do you know? I know. Like the way she lived her life, her grave isn't like this opulent thing. It's very simple with a simple stone cross with just that just says Audrey Hepburn 1929 to 1993. Obviously people go there and put flowers and pictures and stuff on it. Um, she's buried near Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Her son Sean had gone to choose her gravesite. He felt like plot number 63 really felt like his mother to him. It had the cool breeze, it had the serenity. Um he went to the office and asked how much it was. And he said, it's your family's for 500 years for 275 francs. And the son looked, this is my, this might get me. I feel it coming. The son looked at the cemetery owner and he said, how much is it for forever? And they locked eyes and the cemetery owner said 75 francs. So the price of forever was 75 francs. Oh. <laughs> yes. Okay, so here, wait, let me just give you, now this actually happened during her life too. I'm going to bring it up just a tiny bit before we go to media. How about that? Just okay. to let you have a chance to recover. Okay. She was given two tributes that were very close to her heart. There is an Audrey Hepburn rose, officially, and an Audrey Hepburn tulip. And when Audrey found out about this and was presented with the very first official Audrey Hepburn tulip bulb, which she had given to her mother, by the way. So that's how close they were. She said with a beaming face to a very loving crowd, this is the most romantic thing that could ever happen to me. Oh, I love that. Well, I mean, tulips, <laughs> they're a symbol of her country. They, you know, they were part of her life during the war. It's beautiful. Now I want a garden. It, the ground is too frozen. <laughs> the year that she died, she won an Emmy for her television series on the gardens. And she won a Grammy for that album that she made, that last album. These two awards put her in a group of only 15 people who have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. This group also includes Rita Moreno for the third West Side Story reference in one show, Whoopi Goldberg, and most recently, John Legend. I think she would have appreciated the tulip more than she would have these particular awards. Except for the fact that those awards mean that your peers have judged you and found you um, successful or valuable or skilled. I mean, you know, the statuette is one thing. Obviously, she doesn't care about the statuette since she lost him in the bathroom within, you know... 30 minutes of getting him. But um, she did get him back, by the way. So, yes, I don't think it was the award so much as the as the love that she would have appreciated. Yeah. And that'll bring us to the end of our official coverage of Audrey Hepburn. But we still have media. This 
episode is brought to you by Care Of. This winter has been really, really long. I'm ready for the winter blues to be over with and get back into a routine that makes me feel healthier. One way I'm doing it, Care Of Vitamins. Care Of has an online quiz. You're going to go online. You're going to go to takecareof.com and take a five-minute quiz. There's going to be questions about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices. And in the end, you will get a personalized, scientifically backed vitamin and supplement recommendation list. What Care Of does for me is send a personalized subscription box right to my door every month. In it are daily packs of those vitamins that they recommend recommended for me. And it's so easy to remember to take them when they're all in one pack. I just pull one of those packets out after I brush my teeth right before I go to bed. And a portion of every sale goes towards the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers with valuable prenatal vitamins. So for 50% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code Chicks. 50, that's C-H-I-C-K-S, and then the number 50. So for 50% off your first month, the 50, 50% of your first month of personalized care of vitamins, go to takecareof.com and enter code CHICKS50. And now it is time for media. As far as biographies go, the two that I liked the best, the first one was Enchantment, The Life of Audrey Hepburn by Donald Spato. It was written in 2006. He wrote a Jackie Kennedy biography that we liked. It is simple reading. It's There's not a whole lot of details. If you want the details, Audrey Hepburn by Barry Paris, and that was written in 96. So I, I always think it's interesting, the information that's in one that was a little bit older versus the ones that are contemporary, you know, more modern. The Barry Paris book... Uh, he also wrote a biography of Louise Brooks, I want to say, and also um, Greta Garbo. So mm-hmm. he's got some experience in writing some biographies. Also refers to the book that I think is my favorite. Um, they're both very good. But I think my favorite is Audrey Hepburn, a biography by the rhyming to Barry Paris, Warren Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Paris refers to this book, um, which is a little smaller than the Barry Paris book in his book. So and then, of course, you can't forget the other two big books, Audrey Hepburn and Elegant Spirit by her son, Sean, Sean Hepburn Ferrer. And then her second son, Luca, has it is so interesting to me. It is marketing itself kind of as a cookbook, but it's not. It's a memoir, which also includes recipes and a lot of family photos. It's called Audrey at Home, Memories of My Mother's Kitchen. And right on the front is that ridiculous bowl of pasta. (laughs) (laughs) And I love this. She's got this yellow dress. It's so 60s. It's got like these mod flowers on it. It's (laughs) so 60s. She's got the big glasses. And I like how Giovanna, or I'm assuming that's Giovanna, is in the background with a face on, like, how are you serving this pasta, you fool? <laughs> I loved this book. I would actually contemplate buying this one. I love books that have recipes. I always have. So um, I thought this was clever. And all those pictures you mentioned, it's it's quite something. So there's pictures you'll see nowhere else in this book. Um, yeah, I would say if you buy one by Audrey at Home by Luca Doty. I agree. 
Uh, there is several coffee table books out there. The one that I like the best was Audrey Hepburn, A Life in Pictures, edited by Jan Bryce Derbier. I know I just messed that up. <laughs> and there's a short introduction at the beginning by Givenchy. And it is, so, you know, it's a coffee table book. It's really heavy and there's gorgeous pictures in it. That's the one I like the best. To go along with that, I have a children's book that I really thought was pretty dang cute. It's called For Audrey with Love, Audrey Hepburn and Givenchy by Philip Hopman. And it tells the story of their friendship. And it's a children's mm -hmm. book. Yeah, I love that. They had such a special friendship that I think that makes a good uh, friendship model. On the back cover, it says, in quotes, You bear, will we be friends forever? Yes, Audrey, forever. Aww. It's pretty cute. <laughs> ah. um, there was one I'm going to give it uh, honorable mention as a kid's book because it's not as cute as that one, but it's still pretty cute. Just Being Audrey by Margaret Cardillo, illustrated by Julia Denos. And it's the illustrations of this book that really uh, sealed the deal for me. It would be really good for a new reader, you know, that's just starting chapter books. But the illustrations have this mod 60s vibe to them. It was, I loved it. I love that part. There's also a series of books called Little People, Big Dreams. And the Audrey Hepburn book is super cute. Um, written by Isabel Sanchez Vigara and illustrated by Amaya Arasola. So cute. There's one little two-page spread that actually, I mean... Audrey really looks like Audrey in these things, I think. Audrey won award after award, but she worried that she didn't deserve them. While she was a Hollywood star who seemed to have everything, she never forgot there were children in the world who, who were hungry, just as she had been. Mm -hmm. oh, that was really cute. So it kind of covered her two halves just in that little two-page spread. <laughs> I really love that there's so many kids' books about her, so she's not going to be forgotten. There's a new generation coming up that's going to be able to use her as a role model. That doesn't give you tingles. I don't know what does. All right. Well, let's see. Now, you know what? As to movies, you know what to do. <laughs> Go find. Let's see. In what order? I would oh. say Breakfast at Tiffany's because that's the classic and you're missing some cultural references if you don't understand Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then what? Funny Face? My Fair Lady is my favorite. If you like musicals, go to that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. A Nen's story is very powerful and won her awards and props as a serious actress. Yeah. There's a lot of her movies that are on, you know, the streaming services. And I, I binged her movies as soon as we wrapped up Elizabeth Bathory. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I scrubbed my brain. And I was so glad I did. It was, I even did a compare and contrast between Audrey's Sabrina and the newer Sabrina that had uh, Harrison Ford in it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm ready to talk about that, that now, but you know, if you see me on the street, I can talk about <laughs> a compare and contrast between the two because they both had merit. <laughs> I watched, oh, well, I've been, I've watched it before, but I watched Roman Holiday on my way back from Paris sharing a set of earphones needlessly with this guy that looked just like a musketeer. <laughs> That was sitting beside me. And he goes, oh, I would like to watch this. And I'm thinking, but I do not say, you have the power as you have a TV set right in front of you. <laughs> um, we also simulcast the entirety of MAME, although he fell asleep halfway through. And um, 
then on our separate earphones, which we finally got a hold of, it was almost like a breakup, really. He and I watched um, Colette because I oh. knew that was going to be too saucy for me to be sharing earphones with a perfect stranger. <laughs> I was like, look, you push the button. Let's get you a set of headphones and get you started there. Oh, that is and funny. then he sassed me about whether Fresca was or was not a grapefruit drink. And so it was all over. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> What country is this man from? He is French and he was going to visit a small town in Texas. And I thought the ladies there are not ready for you. He was probably 22 and um, he was bringing some European savage hotness. That <laughs> I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was only like, um, I don't know. It's hard to explain. I'm probably cutting all this out, but he, he, it wasn't for me. I wasn't like, woo, you're so hot. I was more like, you're irritating me, but here's the other headphone. That's why. <laughs> so he was like just my companion or whatever. But I was like, the ladies of Texas are not going to understand what is happening. No, not at all. I'm like, a musketeer with that accent shows up. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Oh. So movies. Also, you know what you can do? If you have a library card, you know how often I talk about Libby or Overdrive. And that's where you can get audiobooks or books to play on your phone, including the players. There is a service called Canopy, K-A-N-O-P-Y, also free with your library card. And on Canopy, there are several quality free documentaries about the life of Audrey Hepburn. So if you have your library card on your key ring or whatever, you can just sign up and watch them right now. Nice. I did not know about that. You taught me about Libby and now you've taught me about this one. Nice. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think I'm going to love that one. It's mostly documentaries. Um, and if that's what you're into, it is like treasure trove. Okay. So to bring you down a little, if you want to, and I almost think it's important to, it's nominated for an Oscar. So if you're a completionist and want to watch all the shorts um, and all the documentaries, A Night at the Garden, which I mentioned in the first episode, which, um, so you might've forgotten what it was about. It was about the American Nazis holding a rally that filled Madison Square Garden. Um, a documentary about that that is relatively short is actually up on Vimeo It's in, in its entirety. So I almost think you should watch that to kind of realize that it wasn't just Audrey's parents that were kind of drawn in to the fascist movement. There is an AudreyHepburn.org. It's the home of the Audrey Hepburn Children's Fund. They have a lot of information. There's a lot of pictures and a lot of ways that you can support the projects that Audrey held so dear. So I will link you up to that. Also, just UNICEF.org if you want to yeah. go straight to the source. So also you can watch the entirety of Dutch in Seven Lessons on YouTube. Although if you don't speak Dutch... But you can tell she's being catcalled. You can follow it well enough, I think. <laughs> I thought so. Yeah, I watched it. And she looks like herself, except she's a lot younger. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> oh, no, isn't that strange? Wow, that may be the stupidest thing I've ever said in my whole life. Well, and not really, saying... because, <laughs> not really, because Audrey said the same thing, that she was always surprised when she was recognized and then said, well, I suppose I still look like myself. <laughs> there you go. So even Audrey was surprised. <laughs> Don't feel bad. So we know you guys all listen to podcasts. Um, I would, this is like a love letter to Audrey Hepburn. Mo Rocca has a new podcast. It's called Mobituaries. And episode four uh, is about Audrey and his his run-ins with her and interviews with people who were friends with her. And it is delightful and biased and a love letter. <laughs> and I thought it was great. I was smiling the whole time. 
Awesome. And you must remember this, uh, which is on an indefinite hiatus, I was surprised to find out. She has an episode, it was 22, it was early on, where she looks at the movies specifically, at Audrey Hepburn movies. So if you want a little more uh, details and gossip and tidbits on the movies, that's the one to listen to. I think she focuses a lot on Sabrina and the fashions of Sabrina. Yes. And and how that kind of changed the landscape of... um, society, I think, Uh in America. She has a really great discussion with herself about body positivity and what Audrey Hepburn did for that. Hmm. Yeah. Twisted my thinking around. I was like, yeah, I get it. Although she's obsessed with her collarbone. Just saying. Well, all right. (laughs) I am not alone here. I am obsessed with my collarbone because I didn't see it for years and years and years. Then it just popped out. (laughs) I'm like feeling, I'm like, well, it's there. I've never thought about it. But you know what? There's people that think about their nose every day. And for me, I've never even thought about my nose for one minute. Okay. Let's see. Oh, also a lighter note. This has no bearing on Audrey Hepburn herself. (laughs) This is just a rabbit hole that I fell down. It's like, oh, I remember this. When I was wondering what the deal was with hyphenated names. If you guys want to see that very short skit from the Catherine Tate show about the egg race, where the children realize that the eggs aren't organic and run screaming away. Um, I'll give you a link to that. It's just on YouTube. Oh, okay, great. And also the history of care packages. Um, an article on NPR called How the U.S. Won Hearts Through Stomachs After World War II. And that kind of explains the contents of the care packages, how the 10-in-1 rations got distributed, that kind of thing. There is no drunk history about Audrey Hepburn. The closest you can get is Marilyn Monroe, which... As we've mentioned, Marilyn Monroe at least three times in this podcast is closer than we've got to a lot of other people. But um, so there's an open slot. Yeah. For the history what chase. would you like? What would you pick? Like what part of her life? What was the most dramatic? I mean, would you do the war? I wouldn't want to do drug history on a, on Nazi invasions. <laughs> I don't want to laugh think, about um, it. Roman holiday. I think would it would be good to have the whole Roman holiday getting discovered by Colette, which is like. Oh, yeah. Random. The whole fact that she was first out of the gate, won an Oscar and a Tony. What? You know, everybody else is laying on the ground like this is for established people only. And, you know, here yep. she is. The hecklers, the fact that the guy that shook her hand at 14 ended up being her husband later. Like there's a lot right then that's yeah. pretty cheerful. Yes. Yes. I agree. Good section of her life. <laughs> great. Great picking, Beckett. <laughs> Yeah, but I've never thought about that before. Just kidding. Um, Okay. Okay, so the school she went to in the town of Elham, E-L-H-A-M, England, some very, very diligent local historian has gone street by street and told you the history of every single building in that village, including the uh, Five Bells, which used to be the Five Bells pub that Audrey lived in, not when it was a pub. Anyway, if you're interested in that, um, if you live in England or a small town or are even just, I don't know, up to you, go see. There is an Elm Village tour that includes all that information, uh, house by house, it's, historical it's knowledge. Like on a website? Yep. Elm.co.uk. It is the Elm Historical Society. Okay. I think that's cool. I, I think, well, I thought it was cool enough to mark down and go through the whole thing. Um <laughs> It's kind of like the Bowery Boys, you know? They do things, buildings you've never seen before, and you find that interesting. That's true. That's true. And, I, you know, I think it's pretty common for old pubs from previous centuries to be converted into houses. Yes. 
So I like when schools are converted into like senior housing. I love when that happens. Although it kind of cracks me up because it's like such a metaphor for the whole baby boomer thing. If you think of the baby boomers <laughs> as like a snake ate this big egg and it's like going through. My elementary school and almost everybody else's was built to accommodate the sudden influx of children. Mm-hmm. So it's like really jerry built. There's no cafeteria. There's outbuildings that you have to go outside to go to gym class. You're, you know, you have to go outside to go to music class to a little building. As the baby boomers get older, you can see the egg moving through the snake until now, all the old 50 <laughs> schools are now being changed into yeah. senior housing. It's very interesting. Sometimes the same building, sometimes they raise the building and use it for a new building on the same site. <laughs> I always thought the word raise was weird because it means to take down, but it also means it's spelled differently to go up. That's all. <laughs> I'm in a strange mood. (laughs) Well, okay. Here's one for you. Okay. Our friend Helen Zaltzman at The Illusionist would appreciate this. Inflammable means Mm -hmm. can't catch on fire and prone to catch on fire. Oh. Mm -hmm. Inflammable gas means no smoking. (laughs) Inflammable. Okay. There you go. And in closing, I would like to read a poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson that one of Audrey's sons used as an homage to his mother to kind of summarize her life and honor her. Coincidentally, it is a poem that we placed on the back cover of my mother's funeral program. So I would like to read that to you because it applies to my mother just as well as it does to Audrey Hepburn. And I would hope it applies to me too. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. The Audrey Hepburn Pinterest board is super easy to maintain, so it is increasing more every single day. So go check that out, and there should be a board there for each and every one of our shows. If you would like to see us live, you can. We will be speaking and otherwise participating in panels and such at a brand new podcast convention called PodX. It is held from May 31st to June 2nd, 2019. And unlike other podcast conferences, this one is for listeners and for podcasters. So I think it's going to be very, very exciting. It's in Nashville. Go to podx.com to see what's up and buy your tickets to come see us. We hope to see you there. Special thanks to James Harper of Harper Active for the music he let us use in the middle of the show. And the end song is by Xavier and Ophelia called Made of Stars. Used by permission from Music Alley.